Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Kate Morris is the co-founder and entrepreneur behind Adore Beauty, one of Australia's largest retailers of beauty products. Adore Beauty is fully online, and Kate started the business with her partner before most people would accept online transactions or even knew what the internet was. In this discussion, Kate tells us why and how she decided to build the business the way she did, how her and her partner secured funding in trying times, and some of the mistakes and successes made along the way. We talk about culture and why Kate has chosen to remain as Chief Product Innovation Officer for Adore while pursuing a private equity venture called Glow Capital Partners. To kick things off, I ask, why do customers receive Tim Tams in the package that they receive from Adore Beauty? If you have to kind of cast your mind back to when the business first launched, when it was, was literally out of my garage in like 1999, and in the very, very, very early days, I didn't have any money for marketing. Uh, and so I really had to just kind of rely on word of mouth. And so the whole, the whole idea behind it uh, was to just kind of try and, and think of enough sort of surprise and delight that would go into the box that at least somebody might tell one other person because uh, that, was, that was really all I, all I had to rely on back then. And in the early days, it actually wasn't Tim Tams. Uh, because a lot of my very early customers were from the US because they were just kind of further ahead in in e-commerce than we were here in Australia. And in the beginning, it was actually um, furry friends. Do you remember furry friends? Yeah, they were the square The little square ones, yes. And they had like little Australian, you know, like marsupials and things on them. And um, and the Americans absolutely loved them. But then, you know, in the warm weather, they were no good because they were too melty. (laughs) And so that's why we... That's why we ended up with Tim Tams in the end. But um, I think the reason why our customers love them so much is because what it kind of represents is that this order, it's, it's actually about self-care. And so it's not about here are some things to make you, you know, look half decent. It's not even about that. It is this is a treat for you. It is not for anybody else. Uh, which is why it's, you know, it's just a single Tim Tam in the wrapper. You know, that one is yours and you get to eat it. Um, so that's, yeah, that's why I think people love it. Did, I, I have a question that's kind of related to this, which is bringing us up to today. Yeah, go on. How much do you, how much do you spend on Tim Tams every year? Because I imagine <laughs> there's a lot of Tim Tams. It's actually like pallet loads of Tim Tams. Yeah, right. It's quite funny. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's such a good thing. Um, where did you get the idea for it? you know, back in, back in the day, what, where, where did it come from? Did you just think, oh, this is just something neat or? I don't know. I, you know what? It's such a long time ago. I actually, I actually can't remember, but I was just trying to think of ways that I could make that. You know, the moment that a customer opens their box is kind of, that's the moment that you actually have their full attention. You really don't have their full attention at any other time. Like even when they're on their phones or on your app or something, you know, there's maybe there's a TV on in the background or the kids are asking them for something, but that moment that you're opening your order, you have their full attention. And so I tried to, I guess, think about what are some ways that we can, we can make this moment special and give people like a good feeling when they when they open an adore order and I, and I think that still works like back in the early days I was also kind of wrapping everything with like this blue tissue paper and raffia which 
because probably makes all our branding people want to throw up now. But it was, you know, it was it was it was the late nineties. Raffia was cool, um, <clears throat> but yeah, it's it's definitely it's definitely stuck around. Yeah, well, take us take us back a bit too. Then um, I've heard you say or kind of allude to that. You know, you were very very early. You know, being oh, e-commerce yeah. e-commerce play. Tell us what the kind of environment was like at the time and why you saw this as an opportunity. Well, you have to, I mean, you really do have to cast your mind back and, uh, and I'm, I'm always kind of mildly horrified to discover that we have people working at a door who were born after a door was started, which, you know, fills me kind of with horror. It makes me feel ancient, but it was so pre-smartphone, pre-Facebook, pre-broadband mm. uh, so I only I could only afford one phone line and so I'd have to kind of climb under my desk to unplug the modem and plug the phone back in every time I wanted to log on or off uh, so so it was very very early days and really where Prestige Beauty lived was in department stores a little bit in pharmacies but mostly in department stores and that was where I worked as my part-time uni job and and was able to observe, I guess, that from a customer's perspective wasn't necessarily a great shopping experience, mm. uh, not a lot of access to information, really hard to make good choices and in a lot of cases a bit intimidating and unpleasant and, you know, scary saleswomen like myself on, uh, you know, on, on sales commission and with targets to hit and, and all of that sort of thing. And, uh, and so to me... To me, it was obvious that that is a shopping experience, particularly if you're thinking about a category that's supposed to be about self-care and about, you know, a product that makes you feel good, uh, that that shopping experience was broken. And uh, this, was, this was really super early days of online shopping. So in Australia, there was, um, I don't know if anybody will remember back then, but there was like D-Store and Wishlist and, um, you know, like, but not, but not a lot really, and there wasn't anything for beauty. Uh, and to me, it was just really clear that I think a lot of customers would probably prefer a different, a different way of being able to access these products. And wouldn't it be great if you could actually read all the information and um, be the one in control of your shopping experience, be the one deciding, well, actually, I want to buy this from this brand and this from that brand, which department stores really didn't let you do. So there's a lot of a lot of barriers put in place for the customer. Um, yeah. So to me, it was obvious at the time, but I think it just took took probably ten years to become obvious to anybody else. Because I I think I heard you say previously that you know this is the time when people were still faxing a lot. Oh think, yeah. Do, doing that type oh, of thing. So look, it was a very kind of clunky experience yeah. for a lot of people, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, everybody still kind of had landlines, and not everybody had a mobile phone, and not everybody even had an email address. Uh, so yeah, it was was a different time. How did you how did you go about getting brands and and stock to sell in those first you know first few months? I guess like how did that start? Like what brands did you choose? And tell us a little bit more about that origin. Well, it was less about the brands that I could choose. It was more about taking what I could get because pretty much. <laughs> I would say the resounding response from the beauty industry was no thank you, uh, and which I don't think was really sort of anything I'd anticipated um, because I was actually asking to, you know, 
buy their product. I had, you know, I had my, my money that I borrowed from my boyfriend's dad to be able to go and buy stock and, uh, and just nobody, nobody would take my order. So is that yeah. because you were trying to get it cheaper or? No, like- not even, not even. No, it's the thing with the beauty industry is that, um, you know, the brands really like to control the customer experience. And I guess what I was effectively asking them to do is kind of, you know, hey, let me disrupt this entire, you know, effective uh, business model that's been working for everybody perfectly well since department stores started in, you know, the 50s or whenever it was. And, you know, here's me as a 21-year-old student with no business experience asking to disrupt the entire way they did everything. And, and the perception the perception of online at that point, like the only, the only, you know, context that anyone had for shopping was things like eBay. And it was considered that A, customers wouldn't want this, uh, that customers would not want to shop for beauty in this way, and that B, this was not an appropriate channel for prestige beauty products. Um, mm. This was unsuitable. And so, yes, I think the, the internet was a, was a hard pass for mm. most of the beauty industry back then. Mm. How about, so there's two things that probably I, I would think of being in early 2000s, at least two things that probably stand out for me is people obviously trusting that they're going to get the product. So you've talked about kind of like the, the actual experience of, well, why would I do it online when I can just go to the store? That's the first one. The other yeah. one would be trusting the experience and actually handing over their money. Mm-hmm. How, did, how did you take payment in that? Did you use something like PayPal? Was PayPal around available to you? Uh, oh, not at the very start, I don't think, although oh, I'm trying to cast my mind back. I do remember it being very difficult to um, get a credit card merchant facility. Uh, there was only one bank that would let you process, you, you know, process credit cards online. I remember that was St. George. Uh, right. and, and just nobody else, literally nobody else offered it. You could not do it. Uh, so it was, <laughs> and, and yes, I, I would say definitely, the whole concept of online shopping was very new and very scary for a lot of customers and people very worried about using their credit card online and um, and just not really understanding, you know, what why you would do it or what the benefit would be. Uh, and so it just, it just took a while because, yes, the brands didn't want to be on there and the customers <laughs> weren't really into it. So mm. hence, um, hence, I guess, yeah the whole kind of business model being about 10 years too early. But, you know, in retrospect, if I think about it, it was kind of a blessing in disguise because because I had such little capital to actually start the business. The way that I kind of see things is that you got two sides of the scale. You've got money and time. Uh, and so if you want to go faster, you need a lot more money. I didn't have any money, so I needed to be able to go slowly. So it actually kind of worked out in the end so I just kept the cost base of the business really low Mm. uh, and so that it could grow through cash flow until it got to the point where and this was you know you're thinking kind of 12 years into the business until it got to the point where it was growing too fast for for the amount of capital that we had it took a while did you did you take a wage from the beginning uh, not from the very beginning no I was still studying and so I was living on um I'll study, yep. so which was whatever whatever the government payment was was called back then. If you were a student and they had a thing where you could trade in half of and get and get a loan back for kind of twice the amount because it wasn't actually enough to live on in Melbourne. 
by itself. So, so yes, I lived very frugally for, mm. for a couple of years before taking a wage out of the business. A lot of those um, packet meagering noodles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that, um, my business also went through a kind of really trying moment. I think all good businesses have to as a rite of passage. And um, one of the things that one of our shareholders told me is the first thing you need to do is figure out your ramen number. And I was like, what do you mean ramen number? And he's like, the absolute minimum. If you lived on noodles, what would, what would that be? Like, <laughs> that's the number that you need to know. Yep. Um, and that's, and it's, it's true, right? Like if you're a young entrepreneur, let alone student as well, you've only got two ramen numbers probably. So um, really interesting. But so obviously building a business like a door in the beginning, you have, it's a, it's a platform, right? You have the, the customers and then you have yep. the brands. And the brands. Selling. Yep. Yeah. Sure. I heard you say in a previous podcast that you did that it, one of the keys was actually getting a bigger net. So basically convincing brands to let you sell. Uh-huh. And I'm just curious, how did you go about doing that? Once you started to get in the groove of it, um, you know, I heard you are very good with pitching in particular, like finding out why, why people say no mm-hmm. and then working around that. So can you walk us through some of the strategies um, that kind of worked for you and what you look for now? Well, I think social proof is a really big thing, right? So when I first approached, like at the very, very start, when I approached all the brands to be on the platform and they all said no, except for two. And so I took the two that I could get and then at least, you know, got the website up and running and launched so that people could see it and then went back to everybody again and another five said yes, because they could say, oh, okay, right. I can see how this works. I can see that they're really doing it. It's a real thing and you're going to go through with it. Yes, okay. Uh, and so then I had seven brands and then you could go back to everybody and say, look, I've got these seven brands and, that, and then you'd get a few more. And so it's, so there was, there was a lot of that. Um, I think there was a lot to like the really, the really important part for the big international brands, like their, their biggest asset is their brand equity. Uh, you know, and if you're talking about brands like, you know, Estee Lauder, I mean, that's, that, that is the absolute most important they ha- thing that they have and they defend it with their life as they should. And so it was a long process, I think, of building up the trust to be able to demonstrate to them that, first of all, that there are customers here uh, and, that, and that they are people who might buy your brand because look at the other brands that they're buying on our platform but also to really being able to show that, um, that we were trustworthy and that we were worthy of, you know, um, being partners to those, to those sorts of brands that, that value their brand equity so much. And so that was things like showing that they, we were able to represent the brands correctly on the platform, that, you know, that we had, you know, good photography and that our customer service was at, it was at an appropriate level and, and that, you know, customers buying their brand from us would get a good experience. Uh, there was a lot too around content because uh, one of the things that we've particularly started to build up in the last sort of six years or so at Adore is, is our content capability. So effectively, the part of the ecosystem that we are replacing is not just the department store, but also the glossy magazine. Yeah. And so that, you know, to be able to show that we could do that properly and that that would, that would cut through and that that would resonate uh, with customers. But that, that process to build up trust, uh, it takes a long time. It's not, there's, no, there's no overnight path to trust. You have to do a million little things right for a really long time um, to build that up with both. I mean, 
both with brands and customers, right? Um, that you know, sure. that trust piece. I think that's where that's where for us uh, at Adore, you know, our values have been so important because you know one of our core ones is doing the right thing, which is all about having integrity and making sure that you know if you ever make a mistake, that that people know that you'll own up to it and that, and that you'll fix it. And and I think um, that's been really crucial in our journey of building up these these relationships that we have with our brand partners. Mm. Did I did I hear this correctly? Was it Estee Lauder that took fourteen years? Fourteen for, years. Fourteen mm-hmm. years for you to land. What what finally got them over the line? Oh gosh, you know, it's a million little things. It's a million <laughs> little things. Uh, look, I think in the end, I think in the end, what what's been the story with all of the brands is that eventually they see that you know e-commerce is here to stay, and actually, more than that e-commerce is the channel that is going to be driving all of the growth in this category going forward. Uh, None of the growth is actually coming from bricks and mortar anymore. Mm. Uh, And so that's where you finally see brands kind of, you know, and it's a thing that actually you kind of have to wait for it to happen on a global strategic level. So for instance, our authorization to sell Estee Lauder had to go all the way to New York because we were a pure play and that was, that was so different. Uh, so you're waiting actually for kind of global strategies to change sometimes uh, and I guess making sure that when they do change that you're the partner of choice because you've demonstrated all of your credentials and you've and you've shown that you're going to be the best person to work with. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've seen obviously reading through uh, Adore's, you know, financials and, and your reports and, and what have you and then also the likes of Estee Lauder, I can see that uh, it's pretty obvious how actually how big this online industry is going to be. Not only like it, not, it's already big now, but how big it's most likely going to be in the next five years, which is oh. extraordinary. Like it's it's a massive, massive tailwind at your back, right? I mean, if you look at where it already is in places like China and South Korea, like where it's pushing, you know, sort of fifty percent of mm. all retail sales are coming from online. Now those markets have evolved a little differently because they didn't necessarily start with the big bricks and mortar networks that we have here. But but that writing is absolutely on the wall. That yes, online is going to become an increasing and increasing and increasing share of customers' wallets. Because I think in in most in- instances and for most purchases, you can actually provide a better experience online than in a store. Yeah. On, on, while we're on this, um, how about things like I don't know. I imagine you've given this a lot of thought, but things like you know virtual reality and kind of the the move towards this kind of as Facebook would call it, like the metaverse, but but basically this move towards more like virtual the ability to try on makeup and yeah and and you know, do all this type of stuff. Do you see that replacing a lot of that in-store experience or do you think the in-store experience is still something that will have to be here? I don't see, I mean, in the end, I see those those sorts of experiences as kind of complementary. I think there are still, I think for services particularly, there are still going to be things where customers, I mean, everybody's still going to be getting their hair cut in 10 years time for sure right? like that's still that's still yeah. going to be happening there are certain things that we cannot do um online like we can show you how to apply you know individual false eyelashes but it's still really fiddly and actually sometimes you might you know for a special occasion you might want to get a makeup artist to do that for you like we get it um but i think i think in terms of actually 
in store as a distribution channel kind of becomes less and less valid like unless there is an experience or a reason to go and to go and do that then I think it becomes less important and I think certainly things like uh, like augmented reality are really exciting to be able to you know try on products um, online I, do, I like the tech is kind of still not quite there in terms of like like you can do it you can make it look like you're wearing a lipstick can it make it can it make you look like you are wearing this exact shade of lipstick with, you know, with the variations in finish and how it might look on you versus on somebody else. I don't think that's quite there yet. Mm. It's kind of more of a novelty. It's like a, you know, Snapchat filter or something like that. Like it's fun, but it doesn't necessarily work the same as a try-on. But when the tech, I mean, the tech will get there. uh, And then I think, yes, that that presents a a whole lot of opportunities. I I heard you and you you mentioned this at the beginning is just basically later on in the business unlocking some of that growth potential was access to capital and this will actually tie sure. into something that we're going to talk to at the end mm-hmm. but um I know you've raised you've raised capital a few times um I as you know a small business owner myself I often think that when you come up to people in the investment industry they oftentimes they don't have any business experience they're professional analysts they're professional bankers and they're like okay what's your metric okay great yep no no worries okay how do you explain this risk i don't think that's going to work and sometimes you know sometimes maybe a lot of the time they just don't get it they Mm -hmm. just don't get it um can you describe some of your experiences raising capital and approaching investors um and how maybe I guess how maybe you found those experiences and some of those partners that you 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 took up you took on, um, how they changed the business. So, so yes, your experience of people not getting it. If you would like to perhaps just overlay that with being a woman founder and walking into rooms mm. full of men in suits who you know definitely do not get the the product mm. that you're talking about. Um, yes safe to say that was, <laughs> was a challenging experience. Um, look, I, I was pretty lucky in the sense that I think the first time we raised capital, uh, we actually sold a 25% stake to Woolworths uh, in late 2014. And that only came about through um, through an introduction mm. sort of directly into there from, from a mentor of mine. Um, and so I guess it was... That was just a, a fortunate sort of situation of kind of being at the right place at, in at the right time. Although having you know done the work of of building it, building a network that made that possible. Uh, but I guess Woolworths as retailers certainly got what we were we were on about, and so that did, did you that need that well. money, Kate? Like, did you were you outwardly looking saying I, we need yeah. capital in the mm-hmm. business and we mm-hmm. want smart money? Is that kind of the, the, the idea? That was that was kind of the idea. It was that yes, okay, well, I mean, you could go and just get a check but also if you could get someone who you know could maybe offer you uh mentoring or or help or um expertise I mean Woolworths probably the biggest online retailer in the country Mm. uh and they also had an enormous database the everyday rewards database that um the plan was for us to be able to leverage and so so it kind of made a lot more sense than um than just taking the cash uh I mean in the end it it sort of didn't work out because the strategies kind of diverged it didn't really make sense anymore so um 
but we were able to raise debt to to buy that back. Um, so that was that was my first. You know, and it took sixteen years for banks to be actually <laughs> willing to to consider providing a, to provide any finance. So that was that was a first. That was good. That's a that's a big thing to buy back twenty five. Was it twenty five percent? Twenty five percent. Yeah. Using debt to buy back equity in your own business. I imagine was was that difficult to speak to the banks to get that type of capital? Um, look, I mean, you know, conversations with banks are never easier, I wouldn't say. And, you know, they always kind of involve having to put your house on the line or something like that. But I'd already done that so many times that I was kind of kind of immune to to uh, to that as a that as a risk. So um so yeah, that's I mean that's usually what you have to do with banks, isn't it? Unless there's property, forget it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, I heard you say once before there was a pretty trying, well, there were many trying times, but there was one in particular where you were worried that basically you might, may not have made the, 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 the pay run that, that week. Yeah. Um, and in, in that moment, you actually, I think it was this moment, you went into the car park with your partner and you had what most founders tend to do, which is have a cry um, and just kind of, just think about strategies. I, I, I guess there's two things here, um, but the big one is how important was, is it and, and, and was it to you to have someone with you who's basically in the fight every single day? You know, there are a lot of founders like myself who kind of go it alone, which is, can be really, really trying at times. How important was that support to, to you? Um, I cannot imagine actually being being an entrepreneur and going through that journey without a co-founder so hmm. hats off to, to anybody who's doing it it is it is so hard and I think so few people like unless you've been through it yourself I don't think you really understand uh, and so even if you've got you know good friends and and that kind of thing I don't I think unless they've done it they probably don't really get it and so uh, yeah look for me for me it's absolutely essential and I wouldn't I don't, I don't think I would do it on my own. Um, also, too, I think, I think from from a lot of perspectives, uh, you know, to to have kind of your starting bench with a slightly diversified range of skills, I think is is really super useful. Um, and you know, my co-founder at Adore, James, he and I have developed very complementary but non-overlapping skill sets. And so, you know, so the two of us together were. A, uh, pretty amazing and uh, fully fledged CEO, um, mm. but I, I think that's why I think for you know for found for solo founders it's so important to have a support network, you know, have mentors that you can phone up and you know who will kind of cry into a beer with you or um, you know networks of other founders and there's so there's so much more around in the ecosystem now in terms of support for founders than there was when I started like there was literally nothing you know, mm. there was no mm. no accelerators and no kind of networking groups or or anything like that uh and but but having that support is just essential because it is really hard mm. yeah it is I, yep I can vouch for that it is pretty hard so um <laughs> yeah and I, I do sometimes get envious because you know I just even having someone around that understands the business intimately and can just throw ideas at you, but probably most importantly is challenge you. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important because 
oftentimes we have a singular vision in our heads and it's only when we kind of butt up against someone else that we realize that the direction that we're going should be this way. Right. Um, it's, which is, which is really, really valuable. I think for a lot of people, um, another, another thing that I noticed, which was really interesting in a, in a I think it was the lady brains interview that you'd done previously was that you, you basically articulated that when you went from, I think it was around about 10 employees to, maybe 2025 and I think it was like a 12 month period or something yep you, you said that there was basically like a change of culture and you needed to sit down and decide on principles and this is a really interesting thing in terms of businesses that into that scale up phase is basically how do we go as you knew how do we go from being a technical person who understands everything about everything to inspiring others to do it and do it in the way that I set out yeah um, how did you come up with the principles that now kind of govern the culture of Adora and the way you interact with, with customers? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, this is a really this is a really fundamental piece of work um, that every single startup will have to do at some point if they want to be able to strong, build a strong culture and retain good mm. people. Uh, it is, it is actually fundamental. And, and whether you do it when you have, you know, 20 employees or whether it comes for you in a giant implosion when you hit 300 employees, like at some point that debt must be paid, like you have to do the work. And the work is really a process of saying, what sort of company do we want to be? Uh, what do we want it to be like to work here? What are the standards of behaviour that we set for ourselves when we interact with each other uh, as a team, when we interact with our suppliers, when we interact with our customers, when we interact with the community. Uh, and, and for us, it, yes, as you say, it came at, at the time where we went from kind of being sort of small family sized to all of a sudden, you know, 25 people is, is um, you know, is bigger than that. And I think we had, um, at the time, we, we sort of thought there were couple of personality clashes and probably what what it was more about was that there were some some values clashes and and it was not a pleasant time at you know at Adora it kind of became a a bit of a toxic place to work for for a few months until that all kind of sorted itself out and I guess those of us those of us that were left in in the aftermath sat around and went right nobody wants this again we 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 do not want this to happen again. How do we, how do we make sure that going forward, everybody is on the same page here of how, in terms of how you're expected to behave towards each other. Uh, and so we actually went through this process as a team um, of basically, you know, we, we like with a whiteboard and lots of sticky notes and going, okay, right. When, when things are great here, what are the behaviors that we see at play or you know, the, the, you know, the reverse of that, when things are not good here, what are the things that are happening? And, and we kind of grouped everything together in the end up coming, it, we ended up uh, coming together with a list of, you know, of four core values um, that continue in the business to this day and really govern all of our kind of decision-making processes and, and the ways that we evaluate behaviour. Uh, and, and they're absolutely fundamental. And so they're the key thing that we hire for. Uh, so for instance, you could have, you could be the most experienced applicant for a job. Um, but if you are not, not a values fit, you, 
you can't work here. <laughs> like there's a sort of a sort of a no brilliant jerks uh, policy, and that actually the behaviours are much more important than the experience uh, or the skills. And so they go to things like how we hire. They go for you know for all of our you know, quarterly performance reviews. Um, they, I mean, we talk about them every single you know weekly stand up that we have. You know what are the what are the values that we saw at play and the things that happened in the business last week. Like we bang on about them all of the time, but you have to do that if you want to build a robust, high-performance culture uh, and you want it to be a decent place to work. And for me, that's that's absolutely fundamental. How do you how do you determine during the recruitment phase, how do you determine if someone doesn't stand up against the values? Um, look, we've got we've got a bunch of there's a bunch of sort of different questions that we ask and and they're usually kind of hypothetical sort of situations to understand how people would make a decision um so for instance you know do you think the end you know does the end justify the means like if you've got a target to reach you know how you know, how do you how do you go about it um you know there's there's all you know there's all kinds of kinds of ways that you can sort of try and get to whether or not a person um can display those behaviours. But also too, the great thing about strong cultures is that once everybody understands the standards of behaviour, then it's not actually then just about the leaders reinforcing it anymore. You know, everybody does. Uh, and so, you know, it becomes much easier then for everybody to kind of um, understand, you know, what's expected of them here because that's how everybody behaves. Mm. Do you find that... Um... Like, do you find do you find that people, even the newest people in the team, would come to you with concerns, or like, do you have some sort of feedback loop in place throughout the business to kind of let everyone have that opportunity to speak? And I guess just as you scale out of that, and you have scaled out of that, how do you keep those checks and balances active? Yeah, look, I think that's where, I mean, that's where all your all your sort of communication processes are are really important. I mean, we we have pretty open communication at a door we also do regular like nowadays like particularly once you get to a certain scale um i think you know the anonymous surveys are like really super important so yes there are plenty of sort of um channels for people to speak in but also to make sure that you have those anonymous channels as well that that if there's things that people perhaps don't want to say in front of someone else or maybe don't want to own up to that at least that, that at least it can come out mm. uh, and that's always super valuable but uh, I mean we're lucky now we have we have an absolutely incredible people and culture team um, who you know who managed to be you know the the ones in the business that um that are really they're really across everything um and because they do their jobs so well um I feel like there's very little that that we don't know about because it's just not it's just not that kind of a place because they've made it not that kind of a place. You know, everything's everything's done with a lot of consultation. Everything's done with a lot of transparency. And, and so, again, it's that trust, right? It's you have to do a million little things right over and over and over. Uh, and that's the same whether you're, you know, whether you're working with your employees or whether you're talking to your suppliers or to your customers, um, mm. building that trust. And, and I mean, that's, that's the thing. The leadership have to display the values better than anybody, right? Uh, and if we do that, then we we build trust in how we will respond to things. Mm. I'd like to switch gears uh, just quickly mm. and talk about how you go about 
how you, um, as, as a door, as a $450 million business, as a, as we record this, how you go about, how you would go about building a brand. And then also how, you know, there's, there are, there are many of these, um, smaller brands that are startups, you know, with, um, things like, um, Instagram and Facebook, they're using those to their advantage to launch, you know, products and what have you. And if you can talk about this at all, just in any general sense, um, how can you describe how the kind of the, the industry works and, and kind of what's required to to get up to to speed? Uh, in terms of the beauty industry specifically, yeah. or yeah, yep, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, look, first of all, I think it's it's really important to have a clear idea of what your brand stands for. So again, it's that process of you know, and so we this is a process that we've been through with Adore as a brand as well. What are our brand values? What are the things that we stand for? What are the things that we never go against? Um, you know. What risk do we take, and what you know? What do we not do? Uh, so that you know, that is that is, I think, really important. And finding kind of a differentiated place to to sit. Um, what is going to be different about you compared to you know the rest of the landscape, or or about your competitors? Um, and so, Adore is all about having very authentic and real conversations, and also too about making sure that our customers feel included. Uh, and that um, and that we we don't we don't dictate or we don't talk down to them. We have a very democratic approach, and uh, you know our strapline is like whatever makes you you. So you know we don't for one minute um, purport to tell you the way you know how you should do the beauty category, um, and that's kind of come from actually like you know people sometimes say to me, oh I've I've never known how to put eyeshadow on. Like, do you think I should be wearing eyeshadow? We're like, well, do you want to wear eyeshadow? Like, <laughs> you don't have to. It's perfectly fine. The only thing we'll ever tell you you have to do is wear sunscreen. But everything else is, like, totally optional. It's just whatever makes you feel like the best version of yourself, do it or don't do it, and we're kind of okay with that, which is quite different, actually, compared to the rest of the beauty industry. Um, so finding that sort of differentiated place for your brand to play is, I think, really important. Uh, and then also, I, I think I think finding a way to finding a way to cut through is really important. Uh, and so at Adore, we do that through the content that we create. Mm. Uh, so obviously, there's I mean we've got you know three of the top six beauty podcasts in the country, and and um, quite a quite a differentiated sort of voice in terms of the way we present like our blog content and our and our video content. Um, I think content content marketing and knowing how to do it is just you know, super important nowadays, as I'm sure, mm, <laughs> as oh I'm yeah. sure you're aware, given that we're literally on a podcast right this minute. Um, but yeah, I think, I think finding ways to go about it where it is a conversation with your customers and where you're approaching it from the sense of how can I add value to them? How can I, you know, educate or entertain or inform or, you know, what am I, what am I doing for my customers? Um, because, that's that's the actual thing about about marketing is that it's you know it's much more about what you can do for your customers not um you know not just kind of only having this sort of broadcast conversation that's that's not two way mm. that's kind of how i think about it mm, because uh actually there's actually a related point here which is just on podcasts were you were you and are you surprised how well the podcasts have done or did you expect this kind of success? Um, I do 
don't think we ever expect this kind of success. Like when you do new things, you never really know. And so the way that we approached it was that uh, it was actually, and it was actually came about from a couple of people in the marketing team who'd been kind of lobbying to do a podcast for a while. And in the end, they came and sort of put forward a bit of a business case and said, "Radio, we want to do, we can do, why don't we do three trial episodes? We'll see how they go. And we need $12,000. And we said, you can do your trial episodes, but you can have $2,000. And they went, okay. (laughs) And um, and ended up finding, you know, a, a way to to kind of get it produced for that. And then I guess we we just put it out there, and um, and we're really, you know, really happy to see that it did resonate. Which is not to say that we haven't sort of continued to iterate on it. And you know, and the reason we have three podcasts now is because there's, you know, there's different kind of formats. Like our first one, Beauty IQ Uncensored, it's very much like a kind of a gossipy chat with girlfriends. And not everybody's into that. You know, there were people who like. I don't want all the giggling and the dating chat. I just want to learn about skincare. And so we said, okay, and created skincare school, which is, you know, with a PhD in in cosmetic chemistry. And it's like, okay, here is like, if you want just the information, here's 12 episodes and this will really, you know, advance your education there. And um, so now we, we kind of approach everything as a bit of an experiment. You know, you never kind of bet the farm on anything because you assume that, you know, probably it's going to, need a little bit of iteration some parts of it will work and some parts of it will not maybe none of it does but that doesn't mean that you don't try it Mm. i think that's um i think as as you know like as it as an e-commerce channel there are basically two sides you know you need to um you need to increase average revenue per user or per customer you need to get Mm -hmm. them spending more and the other side of it is you need to attract more customers so if you get more customers and they're spending more your platform spins up and from a financial perspective your business just works that's it and so being active in those channels really helps right yeah absolutely absolutely yeah, yeah. and that's why i as an investor from the outside now seeing a door listed on the sx i can i can see that in action i can see how much you're spending what you're doing and then how much you're getting back for that um and it's it's really clear and concise um there is something that i really want to get to in just just a minute um but i've got kind of one more question on this which is just basically with you personally um stepping back from the ceo role having done it for so long um being so intimately involved with the business seven days a week people don't think about that they think work is five days but until you start a business it's seven days it is how did how did you go about making that transition and what I'm particularly um, interested in is how did you go about finding someone who could fill the void for you? Like not in, in, in totality, but just in, in part, how could, how could, how did you find that person? Well, so first of all, I actually stepped away from the CEO role in 2018. Mm. So James and I were kind of co-CEOs for the first 18 years of the business until we, we sort of felt our, uh, we found that the business felt like it was slowing down, like we couldn't make enough you know, we couldn't get to decisions quick enough. And then we realized that was our fault, the fact that, um, you know, that there were two of us and, and it meant that there were not sort of really clear enough lines of, of responsibility and that it was making everybody's lives actually a bit difficult trying to get us both in the room to get something done. Uh, and so at that point we we decided, okay, yes, it's it's probably best if I'll step away from that. And so I my role became much more around doing a lot of the external facing things in the business uh, and James much more in the in the operational side. So he worked in the business. I worked, you know, on the business from the outside, and and that was and that was fine. Like that that actually worked for both of our skill sets. But but we did also identify at that point 
that you know there was sort of there was coming down the line a point where the business would be at a size where perhaps at neither of our skill sets were really particularly well suited to what would be required from the CEO role you know the the job the job when you have a team of 200 is very different when you have a team of 50 mm. um and and so so we 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 had split up the role in that way and then said okay right well but you know within a couple of years we think we we'll probably actually need to go and hire somebody with a bit of a different skill set and so that was the process that we started uh, when Quadrant came into the business in, in 2019. So this is part of the sort of growth plan that we've made with them is that we need to we need to find and hire the right CEO to take the business forward for the next, you know, for the next kind of five to ten. And, and it took a while. <laughs> it, it took a while because we we didn't we didn't want anybody coming into the job with, um, I guess, pre-existing assumptions of how of how the business should work. So we didn't want anyone actually from the beauty industry. We didn't want anyone from traditional retail. Like we really needed someone who could think about it in a in more of a disruptive kind of way. Uh, and then, obviously, even more important than that was finding someone who was values aligned and continued to build the culture that had made us successful to that point and so yeah it took ages I reckon it took it took maybe eight months uh to find to find the right person um but I feel very feel very lucky that we did and actually when you find the right person it's actually so much easier to be able to kind of transition that that role into place because they just fit better right mm. uh and so Tanila is tremendous so she comes to the role with experience in Similar sorts of a similar sort of disruptive business, but at a much bigger scale. So she came from ten years at Seek, having sort of started up and run different different parts of the business there, and in international strategy roles, that kind of thing. Um, but very much aligned with the culture and values and the way that we want to continue to do things into the future at Adore. Uh, yeah, so feel feel really very very lucky actually. I think when I'd when I had imagined hiring a CEO into the business, I never thought we would actually be able to get anybody like that good so um so it was pretty cool cool um yeah it's just always an interesting conversation because as investors investors typically want to see founders involved they want to see you know we're taught that if we're long-term investors founders are, are the best because they're aligned in more ways than one you know oftentimes sure. it's a name on the door and whatever um one more question on the door and then we'll get to something that you've been working on yeah uh, more recently uh, which is just what are you most excited about with the door as you look forward now? Oh gosh, you know it's funny. I mean, we're we're the twenty-one year overnight success, but in so many ways, like as you say, the the tailwinds that are behind us in terms of this inexorable shift towards e-commerce, I feel like in a lot of ways we're really just at the start in terms of what we can do. I feel like we've spent the last kind of twenty-one years prepping to be where we are right now uh, and particularly to now that we are a listed company and and have access to capital like to me that was one of the most frustrating things about you know growing a door as a bootstrapped business because I felt there were so many opportunities that we just couldn't afford and and that was very frustrating you know it's like having like a super smart kid that you know should really go to Harvard but you can't afford to send them and so that's as this is why I'm excited about where we are right now, because I think 
uh, we have so many really interesting and differentiated parts of our business model that we're really just kind of starting to grow and amplify now. Uh, so the content, I think, is is really a super exciting part of our business. And we're, we're just, I feel like we're just getting a, lot, a little bit of momentum there and, and getting started. And there's, there's heaps more to do. Um, we've got, you know, for instance, our, you know, our app that launched like not even 12 months ago and is, and is really, like is really going well. And I think there's some really, some really exciting parts of that product roadmap that, that continue to play out. Um, I think just, just the way that, you know, we, we want to be able to own um, the destination for discovery uh, mm. for us. Like it's, it's kind of moving past that sort of e-commerce 1.0 of, yeah, you know, here's a, here's a place where you can buy a bunch of things. It's more about how do we um, be the place where you start your journey, um, you know, and that every beauty journey in you know in Australia and 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 then moving internationally is is starting with a door. Um, to me, that's really exciting because the thing that probably hasn't, well, that really hasn't changed about our purpose and our mission is is what we want for our customers to feel, you know, empowered and like they're fabulous and best selves when they walk out the door every morning or not walk out the door as it is currently stay inside <laughs> they stay inside you know what that's that's what I've been uh, sharing with everybody on my on my socials that you know what it actually like do your hair and your makeup every day because honestly you just feel so much better like I, I feel like that sort of descent into active wear just kind of makes everybody feel a bit wretched and uh and there's actually there's actually something to just spending that little bit of time every morning for yourself um but yeah beauty is self-care and and i've kind of always said it uh, but the being being a bigger part of the self-care journey for more and more and more customers is just super exciting to me mm. yeah i think there's a lot a lot to look forward to um i i'm aware of this kind of this transition for you that you've been working on it seems now for a little while which is basically transitioning from you know, operating a business to now investing them. You've mm -hmm. made, I'm aware of a few investments that you've made already um, in, in your own right, I believe. And now um, it looks like you're formalizing kind of the way uh, in which you provide support to founders and, and business owners now. Mm -hmm. um, and that, if I'm not mistaken, is through Glow Capital Partners. Yes. And that's, it sounds really exciting. So maybe, I know it's new to the public realm. So maybe if you can just give us kind of, you know, what it is, like what, what are you setting out to do and, and, and why? Yeah, sure. Um, so Glow Capital Partners is um, a new private equity firm uh, that I've started with uh, Justin Ryan, who is also also the chair of Adore and, uh, and was our investor um, when, they came into the business via the Quadrant Growth Fund in, in 2019. And what we really want to do is provide growth equity in a, in a partnership model to what we see as really future-focused founders, uh, something that we feel has been, or well, certainly my experience has been, the, the, that has been missing from the private equity space is um, something that's really founder oriented and particularly to from the perspective of the founders who 
who place emphasis on things like culture and values and sustainability and diversity and inclusion and, and integrity. So um, good people doing interesting things is, is kind of how I kind of how I think about that, but particularly looking in in the breakout growth stage. So um, companies that are, you know, sort of have have achieved a bit of scale, but are going to need uh, some capital and, you know, and a partner to take them to the next level of growth, like particularly if that's sort of scaling globally. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously Justin and I both have a great amount of experience in e-commerce uh, and consumer. So that's kind of a, a natural place for us to start, but really thinking about any industry where technology is being used to disrupt um, the status quo. Mm. So yeah, very, very exciting things. Um, so yes, still staying in my role at Adore, which is, yeah, which is as chief of innovation. So a much more, a much more strategic role. Mm. Um, but yes, uh, adding adding investor to my bow as well. Yeah, I can imagine you're going to be even busier than you are already, um, which which is which is a good thing. I like um, being busy. Yeah, well, you've done it for so long, so <laughs> it's probably like in your DNA now. It and, is. Um, tell us a little bit more. So how are you, I know, I know it's early days, but how, how do you, like, where do you see the kind of the pain points for businesses in this respect? So, you know, are they going to be businesses that are larger? So, you know, the valuations are 50 million plus, you know, 500 million, like how do we, how are you going to position yourself in this, in this ecosystem? So, so our intended check size is sort of 20 to 50 million. And so we're looking for businesses that kind of have enterprise values of, you know, kind of between 30 to hundred yeah. um, million. Um, so it's businesses at the stage where, you know, maybe the founders are looking for a little bit of liquidity, you know, you've worked really hard on something for, you know, for five, 10 years and and have put everything into growing it, but, you know, ready to take a bit off the table and, and de-risk a bit, but also um, but also get ready for the next, for the next big step up in growth. Uh, certainly my experience is that scaling while exciting is really hard. <laughs> it's really hard to do by yourself or, or without access to capital. Um, and yeah, certainly my experience is, is that the right partner at the right time can can really de-risk so much of that of that fast scale-up process, and, and to bring in um, to bring in a partner with with that kind of expertise and experience, and um, who also is is respectful of the fact that you don't want to sell out everything that you know, that your company stands for. Like um, we think, you know, businesses, like particularly in the consumer space, businesses having purpose is really important. Mm, um, and, sure. you know, and so you so you need to have a supportive partner to make sure that that, that continues. Mm. I think too, um, there's a certain level of, now, nowadays it seems to me from consumers, there's also a certain level of kind of, accountability you know we've gone from kind of like a one-to-many in terms of audience you know when you you get on radio you get on tv and it's kind of like this is the corporate identity and this works and people trust in the corporate identity and there's a lot more nowadays that people want to know who who started this business what are their yeah. principles what do they stand for and are That's they right. aligned with my interests as a consumer because people want that transparency absolutely but one of the things that i thought would be really interesting to ask you because you've been in the situation a few times is basically 
what are some of the things, if you can think of any off the top of your head, uh, that a founder would say to you in a pitch that would really just put you off? Uh, are there any things, that, um, and I imagine you have a lot of people <laughs> coming to you already to try and just talk to you sure. about business. What are some of the things that people just say and you're just like, I don't think this is going to, I don't, I, don't, I don't think we fit. Um, look, I think, <laughs> I think, I think I would have reservations about any business that doesn't have, um, that doesn't really have any diversity in terms of its leadership team. Um, which is not, you know, which is not to say that, you know, that we definitely wouldn't go there, but typically I would see that as an indicator of quality. And if everybody on your leadership team looks the same, I would have some concerns about how, you know, how are you making good decisions? Um, Mm. because all of, all of the research and all of the data suggests that diverse leadership teams make better decisions that lead to more profitable outcomes and fast growth and and all of those sorts of things. So I would definitely see that as an indicator. Um, And particularly if the company didn't think that that was important or wasn't doing anything about it. uh, Yeah, that that would definitely be something I would look at. Um, I think, what else? How about in terms of team? Would you... Would you, before you invest in some of these businesses, would you want to go and experience what the team culture is like? Go to the offices, speak to people. How would you do that kind of part of the process? I think you definitely, I think you definitely talk to to as many people as you can. I mean, yes, you want to you want to do your research with customers. So you'd be looking at what kind of you know what kind of reviews is this business getting online? Like, are, are customers getting a good experience here, or are there lots of people complaining? Um, you know, what is their staff turnover? look like like are there are lots of are there lots of people who used to work here and maybe more than there ought to be um and then you would also look at how do they interact you know with their with their suppliers for instance um you know are they are they a good customer or the, do they throw their weight around like what are they like mm. uh so yeah i think i think that's all i think that's all super important um what else do I look at? I mean, look, you know, you obviously you prefer uh, sort of sectors that have tailwinds already, but I think there's also still opportunities for, you know, for more perhaps uh, sustainable or, or better options in categories that aren't necessarily in growth. And I think like, um, you know, who gives a crap is a really great example of that. I mean, you know, it's not like toilet paper is a super growth hmm. category, but they provide such a compelling and, and you know alternative and a, and a loved brand in a category that's you know it's like a sort of a household consumable, which I think is amazing. Um, but then you know also also beyond that, you can you can come across brands that have a really compelling purpose um, and are and are creating a category. So um, so I also invested in a non-alcoholic beer brand called Heaps Normal, which Mm. is doing is doing incredible things in the alcohol free space of of just normalizing lower al- alcohol consumption but without preaching to people and and I think um, you know my experience with that founding team I actually mentored them through uh, the start made accelerator and my experience with them is they you know all the, all the founders in that business 
really believe in what they're doing and care about it. They're not just going, oh, here's a market opportunity. It's like, no, no, this is, you know, from the heart, believe that that this is something that they need to build. And for me, founders with that kind of purpose uh, and that kind of intent, uh, those are the founders that will be able to overcome any obstacle because, you know, there is something more to it than just building a successful business. Like they actually care about what they're trying to achieve for their customers. Mm. I think uh, Monique, our producer, she went to a parlor gig where Heaps Normal was uh, uh, on the menu. So It's everywhere now. They're, they're yeah. doing so well. Mm. How about then just one more on this one, which is like, how do deals come? How do you suspect deals will come to you? Because I know you've invested in a few of these businesses already. Yeah. How, how are you going to source deals? Because you know, from my experience, Australia's a good sized market, but it's not massive. And they're, you know, they're great businesses that are starting, but those that fit right in your kind of target, your sweet spot, yeah. are probably, there's probably, you know, not as many and you want to attract them. So how do you, how do you think you'll go about doing that? Well, it's funny, kind of part of the, part of the impetus for starting Glow was that um, particularly since the Doors IPO, there were so many founders coming directly to me and just saying hey I want to do what you did I don't know where to start how do I find the right partner like um you know how how does this how does this work help hook me into this whole kind of ecosystem so these are these are people you know and often it's a lot of women founders who have traditionally just kind of sat outside um the regular sorts of networks or or the the structures where you know this is the way it's always worked Uh, and so I guess our thesis is that yes there will be things that come through sort of the traditional M&A advisory network um, and I believe that we'll be a partner of choice but also there's a lot of founders out there who I think have been um, kind of reticent to engage Mm. with the existing funding landscape because they don't see anybody there who gets them. And I guess we're, you know, from the get-go making it very clear what Glow is about and who is for. Uh, and so I, yes, certainly since, well, we only launched last Thursday and my, my inbox is heaving. So I, <laughs> I think, um, I think deal flow will not be a problem. I feel like we're drinking from the fire hose at the moment uh, in a good way, but it's a lot. Mm. Well, that's why you got to turn over rocks too, right? Like there's, there's going to be wrinkles with, you know, there is a wrinkle with every business. And of course, yeah, it's just about working your way through them. But oftentimes in private markets, it's finding the deals that are the hardest part. So sure. um, if you can be the preferred, you know, supplier of that capital, then that's, that works perfectly, right? Falls yeah. into your lap in this yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's also too, one of the reasons why, um, why we've committed to like 50-50 gender diversity within the GLOW uh, team that we're building because I do think that will help us see more things. Um, I think there's a lot actually that's just getting missed because there's still only, well, in private equity, it's been um, in terms of senior positions has been at 3% women for the last six years and just hasn't moved. So I think there's, there's a lot that's getting missed. It's madness when you think Isn't about it. Isn't it? I know. 50% of consumers. It's not great. It's not you know? great. 50% of consumers, but even like 80% of purchasing decisions yeah. are actually yeah, yeah. controlled by women. So yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit mad. Yeah. Well, that's um, definitely a competitive advantage for you and the Glow team. I would think uh, so. Yeah. yeah. Um, this, this is an interesting question. Is um, I, I was going to throw a hypothetical at you, which is basically just 
if you were starting out as as a business say um and let's say you could have you know five hundred thousand dollars and you wanted to build a business let's just say like a door from the get-go today sure who are the first three people that you would hire and what would what would they bring to the table oh gosh um so if you're talking about the e-commerce and consumer space, you need you need amazing marketing talent. Like that's absolutely fundamental. And I have yeah. and I have rejected deals that have that have sort of come across um, my desk where where they do not have incredible marketing talent in the founding team. I'm like, you know what? You just it's too hard. It's too hard without that. Um, so yes, you need you need incredible marketing. Um, you need you need someone who can build a fantastic customer experience, um, and then and then from there it's I don't know you depends what kind of business you're building really doesn't it? But you know maybe maybe it's operations, maybe it's product development. Um, but those those are the those are sort of the three key elements. Like you need an incredible product, you need you know amazing marketing to get it out there, and then you need someone to make sure that your customers are happy and will come back and will tell their friends. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting because there's kind of this belief that you basically need you know a technical professional, a hustler, a salesperson, or marketing, yeah. and someone that does operations for the CEO. Sure. Um, and I, I think if you can find those, which are very similar to what you've just outlined, I yeah. think th- those are kind of the recipe that are, they're going to a lot of successful, not all, but a lot of successful startups yeah. in my yeah. experience. So yeah. they're yeah. really interesting. And it's, and it's interesting, I guess, the order in which you answered that question, you chose marketing first, right? Yes. Yeah. Which, which, is, which is so fundamentally important. I think um, a lot of businesses often neglect marketing because the founder happens to be like even in small businesses, I should say, not just necessarily like startups and entrepreneurial, really entrepreneurial businesses, they often tend to think about it's a byproduct. You know, if we we have we build the product first and build it, they will come. But sometimes they don't rock up. Well, <laughs> so I mean, if you're doing up. if you're doing marketing right, like I'm not just talking about marketing in terms of you know going and advertising and promoting something, but marketing should be that you know the whole process of you know what is your brand about and what is your product say and how does it communicate that and and who are we talking to here and um like marketing should actually be a core part of how you how you even develop um your product and what you're going to stand for Mm, for sure um final question from me then kate which is just as you look back the door's now 450 million dollar business at least that's what um google was telling me in the market cap this morning when i checked it um if you as you look back over the the business and what you've done with it what are you most proud of um what i am most proud of is actually the people and the culture that we built um to be honest it's like you know i mean your your market cap and all of those things like those are those are wonderful but if it was a horrible place to work and it was you know sort of churning and burning people and and uh, i don't I don't feel like I would be, I would be happy about that. Um, the thing that is, I think, a great, a great joy and a great privilege is to have it be a place where where it is safe and people feel included and are able to 
do incredible work and really grow and flourish. It feels like having grown a beautiful garden, honestly. Um, and so that's, to me, that's, that's a lot more important than, than the size of the, of the market cap. I think what it, what it means to people's lives of the people that work there, but also of the customers that we serve. Um, I will never, ever, ever get tired of reading customer feedback because it's, it's those little moments of the way that, you know, that you've provided with them with something in their day. Like, you know, I was having a really terrible day and everything was going wrong. And then my adore order arrived and there was, you know, there was a Tim Tam in there and, you know, and I, I got the, the products that Joe and Hannah suggested on the podcast and, and now my day is great. It's like, well, fantastic. That's what we're here for. Um, mm. That to me is the exciting stuff really. Mm. I'd, love, I'd love to ask this question again in 10 years. Um, once, once Glow is off the ground and um, once we see where a door goes next, because I think, yeah, it's, it's a really exciting next phase for you because you're going to empower other founders to do something similar. And, and that's just as exciting, if not more exciting in, in some respects. So um, Kate, we'll provide all links to Glow in the, in the show notes. So if, if any of our investors want to inquire, they can. We'll also provide links to Adore and all the podcasts as well. So if you're out there thinking that you might get um, someone's something special, even for, for Christmas that's coming up or anything right. like that. Yeah, you can start planning ahead. Oh, uh, definitely really plan ahead. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Kate, thank you for taking some time to, to join me on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much, Owen. It was really fun to chat.